So this is the last uh, part of our series on fear and anxiety. The scripture today is uh, what I want to go to. It's not our one we've been using out of 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7, that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and what? Sound mind. A mind that makes good judgments and can reason with things correctly. A balanced mind, as it says in the Amplified. But I want to go to Luke 4, 18 and 19, as Jesus was in Nazareth and he reads as he entered the synagogue as the teaching rabbi of that particular day, quoting from Isaiah 61, as Isaiah looks forward to the ages to come, that the Messiah would come, and this would be the a word that we use in circles like ours, the anointing, the anointing of the Spirit would be on him. Anointing, if you ever heard that term, what it means, it means literally to have oil poured all over you. Smeared all over you. you. You anoint somebody, you rub oil on them. Well, God's rubbed oil on us, but it's not literal oil. It's the Holy Ghost. It's a, we've received the Holy Spirit. The presence of the Holy Spirit is with us. It clothes, clothes us. It's in us. It works in us. We're people of the Spirit. Jesus was a man of the Spirit. And he quotes this, and then he says, This day, this particular pro prophecy is fulfilled in your eyes. And this is what Jesus said. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Everyone say the word proclaim. proclaim. Now, it's not, you know, have a nice talk. You, you will always offend me if you came up to me afterwards and said, Bob, I really enjoyed your talk. The gospel's not about a nice talk. It's a proclamation about something that's true. So there's an anointing that's upon Jesus, and that same anointing of the work of the Spirit is from Jesus now to his body right now on earth, the church. That is on us. We see that this anointing is to make a declaration of what has taken place with Jesus dying on the cross for us so that our sins can be forgiven, our whole relationship can be open to us, and heaven can be experienced on earth. Okay, those are, those are great things. So it's not, just, it's not just what he did, but it's also an announcement of things to come. Here's some of the things that he said are to come, that there's going to be liberty to people held captive. That there's going to happen, that there's going to, there's going to be eyes that are going to be open. That's naturalized and spiritualized. God's going to open our eyes. You see Jesse Schrader up here. It's amazing how God opened his eyes on that journey on giving. And it was such a delight to watch him grow as a man of God as he just submitted over and over again to things that God was teaching him. Okay, that's what our eyes are being open. That what was going to happen is the oppressed. We're going to find freedom. This particular word, oppressed, in, in Luke's gospel, actually comes from a root verb that means broken in pieces. People who are broken in pieces are going to find healing and freedom. Broken mentally, broken emotionally, broken habitually. There's going to be freedom that they not only proclaim, but they're going to experience. It's interesting, this particular same part of this prophecy in Isaiah said that he would come and heal the brokenhearted and bring people out of prison. Well, it's great when, when we can see people not confined to prison. 
Okay, we have literal jails. We have people here who spent time in jail and they got their freedom, but people who live in a jail every day of their life, tormented by something that God never intended them to live with, Jesus came to set us free. Come on, he came to bring us out of that prison house. And then we were going to announce that the time of favor or the time of new beginnings would begin. This, this scripture in the, in the Hebrew, in the Hebrew context, means the year of jubilee, where all the debts are forgiven and everyone gets a new start. How many people like the idea that you can get your past erased and you get a whole new start? Man, it's kind of great if you've ever had all your debts forgiven you. And you all of a sudden, I got a brand new start. There's something off of me and I can start new. Well, we can all start new. Why don't you say to the person next to you, you got a future. You got a future. Yeah, I don't care what's taking place, where you're at right now, but you have a future. So last week we, we, we dealt with truths. Actually, I said there were 15 truths about mood disorders. And when I kind of redid my sermon, I, I, I lost one of them. So we have 14. <laughs> Matt Rich, who helps me with my, my keynote here, we, we had a whole debate. I had 15, 14. I actually counted 15 last week. He was correct. But when I went to redo it, I, I lost one. These are just truths that I live by. They're not sequential. They're not, they're not necessarily uh, things that, uh, you know, I can say do this first, do this second, do this third. One is the first one uh, is going to be very important, or the second truth I'm going to give you is very important. I'm going to review real quickly, and then we're going to kind of move forward here. These are just nuggets that I know that are part of the answer to this. We said, we said that mood orders are thieves, and, and they are. They, they absolutely rob us of life, and they rob us of potential. We said that we are immaterial. And this is so important that we understand this. That is that we are not biological machines. We are living souls. He breathed in us and we, he became, the first man became a living soul. There's something about us that touches another dimension beyond our senses. There's something within us called the soul. And we're more than just a machine. However, at the same time, we are material. We are body, we are soul, we are spirit. We are affected by our body. Fourth is this, is that how we feel, how we feel is really based on how we interpret life. My body and my emotions really are, 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 are being affected by the way that I view life. Even a panic attack. You don't realize that a lot of what takes place your body's responding to is something that's actually been programmed in your brain about something. Maybe you have a, a panic attack about going over bridges, and so as soon as the car hits the bridge, your heartbeat goes flying through. Because maybe in your mind, this has like a 50% chance of caving. <laughs> and you say, Bob, well, bridges have caved. Yes, they have, but there's been millions and millions and millions of situations where it hasn't. And what happens if on that one unlucky day? Well, then that's the sovereignty of God. <laughs> So how we feel is based on how we interpret life. And then we, then we taught on how we interpret life is based on a number of, of factors. We talked about belief system. We, whatever your belief system is, that's going to determine the way that you feel and process and respond to things. We talked about within this, uh, your experiences. You know, Nicole talked about the experiences that she went through have actually brought her to a healthy place. 
You know, just sometimes, you know, you go through situations, other people are just falling all over the place, but this isn't your first barbecue. You know what I'm saying? It's not your first rodeo. I've been here before. I know how to do this. I, I know what's up and going through. For instance, I grew up actually from the time I'm five or six years old taking care of my mother when she's having grandma epileptic seizures. So when I see a seizure, it is, it, I know exactly what to do. I know exactly how to act. It's weird. Some of us never seen a seizure before. They can flip out. But my experience has taught me one thing where they don't have the same background of experience to go through that. Then we talked about our fallen nature. Then in our fallen nature, which is autonomous by nature, I want to live life apart from God's wisdom, guidance, power, and help. I want to live life. You're on your own. Okay, I want to do it my way, like Frank Sinatra. Okay, the problem with that, the Bible says there's a way that seems right to a man, Proverbs 14, 12, but the end, where it lands, is the way of death. It's going to lead you to a death experience, some type of death experience. I'm not talking about just physical death. There's death in life. You know, the, 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 the way of the transgressor is hard. And what happens is that when we take life in our own hands and we function the way we weren't designed to function, living ourselves and ruling ourselves and everything else, I'll get more into that in a few seconds, we, we adapt to and cope with life by things like fear. Things like anxiety, things like depression, okay? things like avoidance and escape and other things because we weren't made to just do our own thing. That's not the way your machine's created. It's like going into oil can Henry and I want an oil change, but I don't want you to use oil. I want you to use water. Well, you can't use water. Your engine needs oil. But you know what? I, I want to do it my way. I don't, I don't care what the manual says. Come on, give me a water exchange, Okay, you might drive out of, the, out of the, you know, the shop, but you might not get home. You know what I'm saying? You might burn up all your valves and everything else. So, you know, I don't care what you think. It, it will lead to dysfunction after a while. And that's what happens to us. And then we talked about that our, that our, that our belief system is affected by our double-mindedness. Or we're focused on two things at the same time. Jesus said this. How many people would say, I will, above anything else, I will believe Jesus? All right, kind of. All right, okay, we got to... Next week, we're going to start a series called Faith. Okay. <laughs> is, it, is this, is, is that Jesus said we could not focus on God and we couldn't focus on things at the same time. He said wherever your treasure is, the thing that you value the most, that's where your heart, your inner person is. So either you're going to value Jesus, his wisdom, his word, his plan, or you're going to value your stuff, the things that you want to focus on. The problem is we become warriors, we become controllers, and we become fearful. Now, we're going to get to the seventh. Think 14, Bob, you're already halfway through. You're only 14 minutes into your sermon. That's right. Now we slow down. <laughs> God never bypasses our mind in restoring us. Romans chapter 12 and, and, and verse 2 says these words. Do not be conformed, literally squeezed into this world. How many people know that there is an agenda in a hundred different ways to squeeze us into some particular mold that's not the mold that God wants us to be squeezed into? <clears throat> but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now, this particular world, the word renewal, in some of your translations will say the renewing of your mind. It actually means to make new. 
God wants to make your mind and my mind new. He wants to make my thinking new, my perspective of life new. So some questions I think we need to ask ourselves. How much of my mind is shaped by the Bible? That's a great question. How much does this word, rightly divided, rightly interpreted, okay, shape my thinking process and my views of life? Second would be this. How much of my mind is shaped by trends in the church that are here today and gone tomorrow? I mean, there's a lot, there's always two or three new hot things and buzzwords and everyone's riding on it and, you know, they ride on it and all of a sudden it's not a buzzword anymore. Okay, I'm just kind of riding this buzzword. It's so cool and it's great, but it kind of shapes me. And in the American gospel, we have shaped a lot around what's called the American dream and American opportunity kind of focus that we can be whatever we want to be. If we just set our minds to it, we can go for it. That, that, and we're all equal. Here's the issue. We're not equal. I remember I grew up with a kid by the name of Scotty McGregor. Same last name. Now, my last name, McGregor, is M-A-C. He was M-C, but we grew up from kindergarten to high, to high school. He was who's who of Sports Illustrated. He was drafted by the Baltimore Orioles. He was an all-star pitcher. I think he even probably made the Hall of Fame. Been, pitched in two or three World Series. Okay, we, he got saved in, 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 in playing baseball, and we reconnected right after he retired. And I, I was taking him to a church in Salem, and he said to me these words, because he knew me well. He says, Bob, when God made you, he left baseball out. <laughs> I wasn't too happy about that. I, I kind of I pride myself in being a jock, you know, you professional athlete, like who's who in Sports Illustrated. But, but the issue, he, he didn't create us the same. He had different talents and hand-eye coordination and and uh, my only great boasting is I got a hit off of him in Babe Ruth when I was 13 years old. It was, I closed my eyes and it was a bunt. And I, it worked. But, you know, we, 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 we have certain things that shape us. How much of your mind is, is shaped by all sorts of things that are coming at you from culture? I don't care if it's the conservative side, the liberal side, the libertarian side. I don't care if it's the media, Hollywood, universities, journals, or whatever it is. We've got to just examine what's affecting my thinking. Bob, what are you for? I'm for the Bible. That's what I'm for. And I'm telling you, you examine everything that comes in and through your mind and your heart from what's coming at you because it's going to affect the way you feel. I remember when, uh, when I was, uh, you know, in my early 20s and I started experiencing this thing, I had real, I spoke real death over myself. I mean, I was horribly negative. I had her crying all the time. At one point, I remember sitting at our, we had a trailer. How many of you married couples start off in a trailer? <laughs> we were part of the trailer people, Okay. You're living in a trailer. We had a nice trailer. We lived in the trailer. We enjoyed living in a trailer park. And, and we, we, we had a garden. And it was nice. It was a nice. We spent four years in a trailer. And uh, I remember sitting there with my closed fists. I'm nobody. I'm no good. And I'm hitting myself in the face. She's crying. It's just horrible. I, one time I got angry and I had this bowl of oatmeal. And I just threw the bowl. I got so uh, self-hatred. And, and the oatmeal got stuck in the corner on the, on the ceiling. Sue, just as a reminder of my issues, she let it dry there and stayed there. <laughs> just a reminder. 
little testimony to my flesh. And I remember reading a book. I probably don't even agree with everything in the book. Some of you old-timers will remember by a guy named Charles Cap. It was called The Tongue of the Creative Force. And uh, it's talking about, you know, positive confession and everything else. But he quoted out of Matthew chapter 12 where Jesus said, I think it's in verse 39, that for every idle word that you speak, you'll give an account thereof on the day of judgment. I remember reading that in the book, and the book fell out of my hand, and the fear of God struck me. And I said, I can't keep doing this. And I realized that my confidence was in myself. And when I looked into myself, I gave myself a low grade, so I didn't have much confidence instead of my confidence being in God. For about two years, I had this propulsion in me to say something. And I, no, I can't say it. I can't say it. It's like coming out of my mouth. I don't, don't, don't say it. Back in. Because I was retraining myself to try to say right things over myself about God's ability in me and not my own. What did I need? I needed some changing in my thinking. God's not going to bypass our mind. Truth number eight, God never designed us to function as masters. People who self-rule their their life, but sons who serve and trust our Father. Let's look at this. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles. Now, you got to understand, when the New Testament is talking about Gentiles and Jews, you got to look at it, people who believe and people who don't believe. God's people versus non-God's people. This is people outside of being Christians. This is what they seek after. Now notice the contrast. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But this is what you're going to do. You're going to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things. You heard Skyler today how God was paying their rent and everything else. All these things will be added unto you. You were created to trust and obey. That's what you're created to do. Your machine is that way psychologically and emotionally. When you get in, I'm going to do it my way and rule in my life, you're going to run into a thing called anxiety. You're going to come into fear. You're going to want to get into control. Jesus said, just abandon yourself to do the will of God. Yes, be practical in finances and everything else, but eventually you got to give it to God. Give it to God. I'll never forget the story of Bill and Gerda Brown. Gerda's now in heaven. Missionaries for decades in like 30 plus nations. And they were off on a furlough, I think, from Africa, and they were in Spain, and they didn't have any money. And uh, they had money for breakfast, but they were kind of really limited, and they wanted a little respite. So this coffee shop, out, sitting outside the sidewalk, I don't know what city in Spain they were in, they, uh, they said, Lord, we pray, we need rest, and, and we need money, and we, we put it in your hands. As soon as they prayed, someone walked around the corner, and they looked at them, and they said, hey, do you guys want to be in a movie? And they were doing a movie, and uh, they needed extras. So these are good Pentecostal people, probably never been in a movie theater before. <laughs> Bill goes, yeah. So they were extras in some movie. O.J. Simpson was starring in it, you know, back before, you know, that. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> you know. And uh, they got all the money, got paid right on the spot, and all the money they needed, they provided the rest of their vacation, and, you know, you, you just kind of do his thing, and he does the rest. He does the rest. I was in a, I tell, I've told you the story before where I was in a worship service back in the Bible Temple days, 
And we, we were, you know, robbing Peter to pay Paul to get, a, to get by. I mean, their, their financial policies in those days is what's the least amount of money you and Sue can live on? You know, we, we, we were going, we were handing mouth, and, and, and I'm worshiping, and I'm literally saying, okay, I can take a, I love you, Lord, and I can take this bill, pay it over there, and I lift my voice, but right now I'm trying to figure out how much gas I need to worship you, I worship you, but I really, when do I pay that mortgage? Oh, my soul. <laughs> and Wendell Smith got up there in the middle of worship, he says, you know, someone's got their hands raised right now. And you're singing, but you're thinking about how you're going to pay your bills. And God's telling you just to give him. It's not your issue. He'll take care of it. Do you think I felt convicted? Do you think I felt stupid? I felt really stupid, really convicted. But what was I doing? I was too focused. I was treasuring my stuff and trying to do the will of God at the same time. I was not trusting and obeying. I was trying to be the master of my soul. We are sons and daughters who just trust God. You think God loves his kids? Yes, he does. How, how many parents were just you know, talking at night? You know, I think tomorrow we won't have any food. Just starve the kids. Okay. I think we just deny them food and just see what they do. I think we send them to school naked. Come on. That would be sick. Well, we put that on God. We think God's that sick. We've got to trust. Going on, truth number nine, we must get radically right with God to overcome fear and anxiety. This is one of my favorite scriptures because it's so true. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. You know, when you're living in alignment to God's will, it gives you a powerful confidence that God is with you. I'll never forget November 1991, Magic Johnson, the L.A. Lakers, came out with an announcement that he had, he had uh, uh, got AIDS and uh, made his announcement he was going to retire. It struck fear in the culture. And I was uh, working out at U.S. Uh, Athletic Club on 82nd in Portland, and I was in the locker room after my workout, and the place was packed, guys getting off of work, and the buzz in the locker room, there had to be 30, 40 guys in there, was talking about this AIDS thing. And there was conversations like this going on. I've been in some sleazy places. I better go get myself checked. Well, I'm going to the doctor. I'm going to the doctor. I'm going to the doctor. And I'm thinking, I'm a one-woman man. <laughs> this is the day. This is the day that the Lord has made. That was a song back then. Anyway. I remember how bold I felt. Like, I don't have those fears. I, you know, I had a pass, but we took a blood test before we got married, so I was fine. <laughs> Too raw? Okay. <laughs> we had lived a great life, Sue and I. We, we, we made covenant. We, we stayed holy. We were pursuing God, and there was a boldness in that hour where fear was just wrecking havoc in the locker room. And guys were all talking very openly how they could have AIDS also. Well, we're bold people, aren't we? How many people feel when a, when a sheriff or a Vancouver Police Department squad car comes by, you get a little nervous, they're going to pull you over? What's wrong? <laughs> Leave you to meditate on that one. Truth number 10. <laughs> we can only live with a balanced mind when we are secure in Christ. 
Now, this term being in Christ is spread throughout the New Testament. I didn't count how many times, you know, do a little statistic thing for you, but you can't get away from this, especially in Pauline writing, about this thing called in Christ. When we are in Christ, it means our position in Christ. Right now, I stand, you stand. If you're a follower of Jesus, we stand completely righteous in the presence of God. Completely righteous. That as if we've never done anything wrong in our life. But you, Bob, you should have seen me talk with my wife on the way to church. You're still righteous. Justified, just if you had never sinned. I mean, you, you won't be any more righteous in the presence of God than you are now because of what he declared over you, not because of what you've done. I mean, we've got to become secure, but it's also who Jesus is in our life and, and what he wants to do in me and what he does for me. Come on, I, I am absolutely loved. You're loved. Come on, we are, we are forgiven. Everyone say, I am forgiven. forgiven. Come on. He said, I am with you. Say, he's with me. You were adopted. Say, I'm adopted. Come on, you are destined. Say, I'm destined. Come on, just that alone. It's good stuff, huh? Come on, say, I'm crucified. Yeah, I wasn't as enthusiastic. But it does say, I'm crucified with Christ. That means... His life is living through me. No, it's not me. It's him living through me. And so here we have a a great scripture that everyone probably knows here, but we got to get into our spirit. Come on, who's going to separate us from the love of Christ? The answer is no one. Nothing. One of the great mysteries of life, and you you got to grab a hold of this, is the immense of in, the, in the, the midst of intense suffering, God still loves me and God is still with me. Now, that's, that's the great mystery. I could be going through the lowest time of my life right now, but he still loves me and he still is with me. Amen. You know, one of the things that I brought into my faith from my Catholic background and then one thing I can just say in a very healthy way that Catholics accept is they accept the doctrine of suffering. I mean, my goodness, you go to church, you see Jesus hanging on a cross, you know. He never gets resurrected. It's always getting crucified. Okay, and there you are. You're constantly, you know, following that example, and you're going to go through life, and you're going to suffer, and, you know, the priests are giving up all their making vows of poverty, and, you know, the nuns have bad habits. Poor things, they, they're suffocating on those things. And, uh, you know, you just got all these things and you're constantly doing penance and that's life. And, but the one thing that you understand is in the middle of that, God loves you. And so when I got saved, I, I transferred that knowledge, or at least that conviction into Christianity. And I found one of the things that really I wrestled with is Protestants have a real hard time with that. Somehow they've been sold a bill of goods is that you get Jesus, you get a, you get a cakewalk. You get Jesus, you know, you know, nothing bad happens to you. You get a Jesus and you're, you're a king's kid and everything's just great. And all of a sudden, bad things happen and people get angry with God. It baffled me that people would be angry with God. How can you get angry with God? I just knew that when I was going through the stuff, somehow he still loved me. Where's God? He's right there. 
Why is he doing that? I, I don't have answers. No one has answers for that. But nothing separates me from his love. And I got to hang on to that. Truth number 11 is this, that the problems and challenges must be stated and framed into a correct perspective. This is very important. The problem is you're saying, and excuse me, the truth of this and, and the key to this, you're saying what you're thinking. Now here, here's the problem with what I'm thinking. What I'm thinking makes more sense in my head uh, than when I say it. So I got these thoughts, and it sounds really good in my head until I articulate it, and it sounds really stupid, weird, and it helps you analyze it. Okay, so I'll have to say that uh, everybody at City Harvest Church, they hate Sue and I, and I'm playing with that. And then all of a sudden I say that. Everybody at City Harvest Church hates Sue and I. Well, that's dumb. Well, that's not true. Why would I think that way? You see, my mouth expresses what's going on in my head and allows it to get out there so I can analyze it, which brings me to my next statement. So state your crazy thoughts so that you can have them out there and actually see them what they are. The, you know, the, the, the next truth is this. We must separate facts from assumption in, assumptions in our thinking. Come on, it's, it's important that we understand this. The truth is this. And I got this from the Truth Project, and I thought it was so good. Remember the truth? Probably old-timers remember the Truth Project. Truth equals that which is real. So yeah, truth is the Bible, but truth is just natural, natural things. Okay, Lars over here, he's a, he's a pilot, an airline pilot. He can give you all the statistics how safe it is to fly. Maybe, maybe, maybe share something I don't want him to share with people. But... Uh, <laughs> But there's a lot of reality and truth of how safe it is, okay? Because that's, that's truth. Whatever real is truth. That wall is real. How do I know? Well, sprint into it, and you'll find out it's real. So truth is what is real. And I have to, I have to sort out what's real versus what is false. And so I'm going to have to go through this exercise of, of dividing assumptions from facts. When I was in the darkest part of this journey... I had a highly prohibitive conscience. I mean, I was guilty about everything. And so I went through Central Washington's program. I got a degree in special education there. And, and one of the things I got was a student loan that I got forgiven 20% a year because I worked with special ed uh, classes. So every year I got forgiven 20%. One day, about two, three years into this thing, I get in these guilt feelings like I lied to them Okay, a false assumption. I lied to them about my financial status. You see, when I was in a divorce situation, my dad had a ton of money, but I never saw him. My mom had custody of me, and we lived in abject poverty. And so I said, because my dad had money, I never mentioned my dad's money. I, I must be guilty. And I was tormented, tormented. So finally, I so said, I got to deal with this. And I got in a car, and I drove 150 miles, okay, all the way to Central Washington's financial aid, made an appointment with the head over the director over financial aid, sat them down, confessed my sin to him, and he looked at me, and he says, you didn't have to report your debt stuff. Whoever had custody, you'd qualify on that. I'm thinking, I mean, I've wasted three months. <laughs> I've wasted, I've wasted all this, all the gas driving over here. 
and I was, I was living under a, a false assumption. So I said, you're fine. Just walked out of there and, oh, man. I'm crazy. <laughs> I've lost my mind. I was losing my mind. You got to separate facts from assumption. Okay, truth number 13. We must discern between our responsibilities and God's responsibilities. Remember, we're not made for self-rule. We're made to abandon ourselves to do the will of God. And yes, you got to pay your bills and be a steward and everything else. But, you, but there's, there's a limit of what you can do. Doing and having all, you, you just do the will of God and you trust God. You allow Him to be who He needs to be. When, of course, when we take over that role, we get a thing called anxiety. We get a thing called fear. And then lastly, the last truth is this. We must renounce Satan's lies. Now the question that you may comes to me, you know, is, is where is Satan in all this? And uh, is he in this? And I said, yes. Well, how? Well, you know, I don't specifically know the dark world and how demons all operate and, and everything. I heard a guy named Joey Bonifacio in Singapore uh, this last summer. And his contingency, there's not a demon for every person. He said, there was a limited amount of people cast out of heaven. You know, the population has far outgrown the original bunch. <laughs> and so he, he, that's, but, but he said, what happens is that the enemy works on your brain, works on your emotions, just leaves you to yourself. Yeah. He's already warped you. He doesn't need to be pounding. So sometimes, you know, yeah, it's Satan, but he's not like, cast that demon out. Well, it may, it may not be demon. You're just dealing with the residue of the demon messing your thinking up. Oh, that was a very interesting perspective that he had. Thought he'd give me some emails. <laughs> but the one thing that Satan does is he deceives. He lies. That's his activity. Jesus said this, you are of your father the devil. Of course, Jesus really minced words. You know, <laughs> he really is politically correct. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, does not stand in the truth. By the way, he wasn't saying this to a bunch of broken people. He was saying this to the religious establishment of his day. He does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and the father of lies. Remember, lies tell me what things that are not true and not real. Truth is that which is real. That's what we're dealing with. I'm going to fly through this. Let me get the worship team up here, if you can get up here. Well, how steps to freedom? We've already talked to this. Radically commit yourself to God. When we are in a right relationship with God, things operate much better. When we're not in a right relationship, we get messed up mentally, we get messed up emotionally, we get messed up relationally, and we even get messed up physically. When you say, that person makes me sick, probably you're getting physically sick. That person's a pain in my neck. You're probably getting a pain in your neck. Your body was not made to, to, to carry resentment and hatred and anger and stress and worry. Is everything all right? Okay, good. I'm not worried at all. Second, find your adequacy in Christ. Paul said this, Philippians 3.3. 3. He said, 
for we are the circumcision. Don't, don't worry what that, I won't break that down, what that means. But in the context of the, of the first century, it meant we are the true people of God who worship by the Spirit of God. It's all about the Spirit. It's the work of the Spirit. It's moved by the Spirit. And, the, and, and we glory, we boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh or our own abilities. You say, well, I really got limitations, Bob. Rejoice in them. Because you're a candidate for the power of God. Amen. You had these great abilities, you're losing out on the power of God. Rejoice in your limitations. Sometimes you, you think you can figure out your future. You can't figure out your future. Some of you here are trying to figure out your spouse. You can't completely figure out your spouse. I'm not talking about wives. I'm not husbands. How many wives? I'm trying to figure out my husband. I'm moody. I'm weird. Sue can't figure me out sometimes. You can't figure out your children sometimes. You can't figure out your solutions to your problems. You've got to go to God. So you've got to rest in the loving arms of God. You know, one of the ways that God taught me to trust in him was through financial scarcity. I know stories that Skyler told today. I know him too well. But I also saw the faithfulness of God over and over and over and over and over again. I remember one time I drove. I worked at Rocky Butte. We used to have a 71 Datsun 510. How many people remember those little Datsun 510s? Almost fell over here. It's the anointing. It sounded like a go-kart. And I got over the bridge, and I got over to Rocky Butte, and I had my, my, my needle on my gas gauge was way past E. And I was thankful I got to work. We had no money in our account. No money. And I just said, Lord, I'm here to serve. I'm doing your will. And you know where I'm at. And, and somehow you've got to get me home. Because I knew I didn't have enough gas to get home. To start teaching. I had to run over to the Portland Bible College Chapel to give, give uh, Wendell Smith some, some notes he needed. And I ran over there. And, and when I said, Wendell, here's your notes. He says, Bob, come over here. I want to talk to you. I said, yeah. The Lord talked with me this morning, and he told me to give you this. It was five $20 bills. This is probably 1986. It's a lot of bucos. Okay. Gave it to me, and I think, oh, my goodness. I ran back to the school, and the Lord says, I want you to give 20 of this to one of our teachers. Go give us. I said, you know, hey, the name is Suni. I said, Suni, the Lord told me to give you this $20. She goes, I can't believe that. I didn't have enough gas to get home, and I had no money. <laughs> It was, a, it was a great school to work for. <laughs> Man, he has blessed us. He has blessed us. We were always happy. I got home. I'm thinking, God's so good. I haven't paid for my gas. Then we can go out to dinner and buy some groceries or something. I get there. Our basement's flooded. And so I have to go rent a carpet shampooer. That's the house you're living in right now, Leslie. <laughs> and, and we had just enough money for the shampooer, for the gas. You know, he gives us just enough. So why didn't God just give you a little cup runneth over thing? Because he, I went right back on my knees, and he kept showing himself over and over and over and over and over again. You know what you start doing? You start trusting. Amen. You want to analyze your fears and analyze your worries. We talked about stating them. 
I want to encourage you to journal your crazy thoughts. Now, don't let your children read your journal. <laughs> when I die, burn all my journals. Burn them. I don't want the kids looking into that going, oh, my God. Five, find, find security in who you are in Christ. Come on, love, accepted, adopted, going on. Yeah, crucified, dead in sin. Who you are in Jesus, get that in you. It's a reality. And you start living the way you think. Live a responsible life of duty. I'm telling you, this is so important. What helped Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln, I talked about last week, get out of his depression was the Fugitive Slave Act. And somehow a cause rose up that he was responsible to stop the extension of slavery. It was a story was told of a, a Coast Guard rescue team going out into a horrible storm and the, and the first mate said to the captain, Captain, we cannot go out here. We, 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 we may not return. He says, well, I have to say this. We have to go out there and we may not return. We don't have to return. But we do have to go out. There's something about duty. It's a lost word in our culture. There's something about duty that gives me courage. People depend upon me. I can't buckle to fear. I can't let anxiety take me out. I can't let depression defeat me because I have a cause. It might, your cause might be your family. It might be your neighbor. It might just be your husband or your wife. But it is a cause. Duty will help you defeat this thing. What else? Learn to cry out to God. You know, Jesus said something like this. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be what? Comforted. You ever just had a bawling session with Jesus? You're just bawling. Buckets. One time I cried around this altar. By the time I was done praying, I had like 50 wads of Kleenex all over the place. And you just, all of a sudden, you just feel so much better. Because you do, you're doing what you were made to do. Casting your weakness on him. And he cares for you. Get a physical. Deal with the material. I, you know, Julia, my, my oldest daughter... You know, sometimes she would just be so not herself and off the chart, and I'd give her something to eat, and like that, she'd be better. Chad jokes all the time with me. You know, when he said, can I marry her? I said, yeah, but feed her. <laughs> give her a protein bar. Can I just... You'd be surprised how what you don't eat and eat absolutely affects you. Get a physical... You might need some help medically. Come on, allow ruminating thoughts to party and pass. Remember rumination as they come and they round and around and around. You can't get them out like a fly in your head they, and it dominates you. And some of you experience that. Why do you say just let them party and remain there? Because this is what happens. When I try to bind them or cast them out, using that scripture, you know, cast down every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God in my mind. By the way, that scripture is not talking about casting thoughts out of your head. That's talking about Paul preaching and the strongholds of lies falling off of people. When I try to cast those things down, or I'm even rebuking the devil, I rebuke the devil, rebuke the devil, you're actually empowering those thoughts. Your brain is engaging with a greater grip to focus on them. 
So just let them party. It's like trying to read at Starbucks or a coffee shop with the noise and the chatter around. You got it there, but you can focus and concentrate. What's going to happen? Eventually, they'll get tired of partying, and they'll pass through. I had a young man come to me. He was a mess. He was on 16 different meds. He had to drop out of Clark College. He had dreams and temptations about blowing up a high school campus. He was a mess. And we started working. And one of the things that he was doing is, I rebuke you, Satan, I rebuke you, Satan, I rebuke you, Satan. And I just said, I, I wasn't even, even educated in this part of, of psychology. I said, stop doing that. It's, it's, it's empowering your thoughts. And so we just started, I taught him how to relax with himself. Relax with your crazy thoughts. Party with them and just laugh at yourself and let them go. Within probably about five months, he was off of all 16 meds. So you've got to sometimes, you just got to let it go. Be patient. It will eventually fade away. Find a safe person. What's a safe person? It's a friend who loves you. Someone who won't laugh at you. Someone whose opinion you're choosing to honor and their perspective you're choosing to honor above your opinion and above your perspective. And you're saying, I'm going to share with them my thoughts. And if they say it's this, then I'm going to submit to what they say it is and give up my right to think about what I think it is. It's a very important skill. Find a safe person. Speak kindly to yourself. Remember, death speech is one of the manifestations of this. So you've got to start tapping into who Jesus is in your life, how God has made you. Embrace your weaknesses. And acknowledge your failures and laugh at yourself knowing that God loves you. Come on, you just have fun. I was, I've been really intense all day. I said to, said to tomorrow before she left, I said, I'm really bossy today, aren't I? She goes, yes, you are. I am, okay. I'm excited. When I'm excited, I get bossy. Just who you are. Just be real about that. God loves you. I mean, God's not shocked that you got a quirk. I mean, how many people could just say I got four or five, like, habits that are just, I mean, they're just stupid. I mean, like, I lose keys all the time. Or I, I, don't, I walk into rooms, I don't know why I'm there. And, uh, I mean, I, 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 I'm clumsy. My dad said I was a cub bear with boxing gloves on. I, I mean, just, there's just certain things that just don't change. No, no matter how much I try to really improve, they're just there. Just laugh at them. God, God finds great humor in that. Look at all the animals he created, how weird they are. He just, that's my boy. That's my girl. I'm working in their life. It doesn't matter. My power is going to work through them. Come on. You need to listen to your confession. It reveals your thinking. It's your thinking monitor. When I say it, that means that's what's going on in my head, and I can evaluate it. Take small steps. I know. What about Bob? Baby steps. But take small steps to confront your fear. Maybe you're afraid of elevators. Take a friend with you to a building, and you're going to stand right here. I'm going to go up one floor. I'm going to walk down the staircase. Just don't move. Okay. Call me in 30 seconds. Okay, we're going to go two floors, and so I'll come on down. I'm going to go in it again. We're going to go three floors. He goes, Bob, come on, really? Yes. You're not going to conquer a fear overnight, but you're going to have to face it. 
you're going to have to face it and have somebody with you and take those steps and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you when you believed, where you believed, a, a lie from Satan and when that happened. There's a lot of situations in your life and my life where people said and did things to us that created some level of trauma where the enemy came in at that particular point and we believed something false about ourselves. I remember when I got sexually abused at the age of 12 and I was molested and uh, I was deeply traumatized. I didn't, I didn't talk for a week. I didn't tell anybody. You, don't, you didn't talk about it in those days. It was silent. But I remember this clearly at the age of 12. There's something weird about me and there's something wrong about me that I am different than all these other 12-year-olds. And it was real. And I thought those very exact words. A lie entered into me because of a trauma that took place. Ask God, open up, maybe where I believed a lie about myself that so comes back up and whacks me 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 and I, i got to renounce that lie. It's not true. Bring truth to it. Lastly, accept the, the reality of your vulnerability. And I want to say this, in the evilness of the world, but that you are safe in God's grace and love. You know, I know that we're looking for a Christian Shangri-La. You know, especially I think this church, God's allowing some stuff to, for us to take place where we're going to somehow come out of this with alligator skin and tender hearts. And I... It's no Shangri-La. I dealt with a lot of situations this week of a lot of pain and a lot of people. We got a young Marine in a hospital, OHSU, fighting for his life. Only been married five months. Fighting for his life. My life, life has some tough challenges. Tough challenges. Sometimes curveballs come our way, and we've all gone through that. So if you don't accept life as a Shangri-La, but still God's grace is there, God is with us, and somehow in God's plan, he's going to get us to the other side. And I'm telling you, he will, and he will over again and again and again. I can get through this life. Paul said that Jesus has delivered us from this present evil age. He didn't say this is just a wonderful age where we get to experience everything. Galatians 1, I think it's 5, he says he's delivered us from this present evil age. We're in the middle of this thing. In the world, you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Come on, you know what? How you get psychologically strong, you recognize that life is tough and then you die. You get that down? Everything looks up from there. Come on, yeah, we got a few bruises. We're in a war. We're going to start a series next week called The Contender. We're in a conflict. But we fight. We press through. Guys that did combat and were year, year and a half, tour duties. There was hardly one of them that came out of that without at least one purple heart. We get shot at. Shrapnel comes and scars and memories and traumas. But we still win the battle. We can win.